This morning, our text is from Zechariah chapter 12, verses 7 to 10. Zechariah 12, 7 to 10. Now, during the time when, when Zechariah was a prophet, the Babylon captivity was over. And God's people were back in Palestine. The need to repent, however, had not disappeared. Zechariah called his people to repent and avoid the rebellion of their ancestors. In chapters 12 through 14, Zechariah prophesies that the nations will gather to fight against Jerusalem and Judah. Let's read the word of the Lord this morning. Zechariah chapter 12, verses 7 to 10. And the Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah first, that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not pass, surpass that of Judah. On that day, the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David, and the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. And on that day, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Thus ends the reading. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, for your word is truth. God, I pray that you would speak through your word today, that you would perform the miracle that feeds our souls. I pray this in your name. Amen. So my dad is the pastor of a church in Olympia, Washington. And he's a pastor there for 11 months out of the year, but for one month out of the year, he is a commercial fisherman up in Alaska. He catches sockeye salmon and fishes out of Bristol Bay. Now, in the bay, as they call it, there are regulations on how, how long your fishing boat can be. 32 feet. That's it. 32 feet. Your boat can't be any longer than that. And if the manufacturer made it longer, then you'll have to cut the front of the boat off to get it to be within the 32-foot regulation. But boats can be as tall as you want them to be. They can be as wide as you want them to be. Half those boats out there, man, I mean, it, it can feel like they're as long as they are wide. It's like this square tube, like, making its way around because they're just trying to get as much space as they possibly can on their back deck. So there's this, there's this crazy assortment of all sorts, all types of boats. They're all shapes, all sizes, and they're just kind of motoring around in Bristol Bay in these different river districts, these different river systems. Now, that's just the fishing boats. There are also boats that the fishermen deliver to. These boats are tenders. I'm not sure how many of you are familiar with uh, Deadliest Catch, but they've got like these big crabbing boats. And I mean, we don't do Deadliest Catch stuff. Like, that's not what happens. That's the Bering Sea. We're in the bay. Bering Sea is a lot like, ah, I'm no good with that. No thanks. I, I, I'm not going to do that. But the boats that do do it, uh, they're, they're basically the kind of boat that we would deliver to. They're much bigger than the 32 feet. They're a lot like, I, Time Bandit, I'm not sure if we know a Time Bandit. I, I've seen Time Bandit around while, while working with Dad on his boat. Like, those are the types of ships that we deliver to. Way bigger, way bigger than our little 32-foot boats. Now, one of the river systems that my father typically fishes in is the Naknak River. And the tides for the Naknak can vary quite a bit. 
They change every, about every six hours, and the difference can be up to as much as 25 feet, possibly more, depending on the day and the tide. And when the tide gets low, sandbars are revealed. And there are times when you may not realize that the tide is going out as quickly as it is. 25 feet in six hours, that's a lot of water moving one direction. And then it's like still for a little while, and then it all comes rushing back in. And, and so you're trying to navigate your boat based off of what's going on with the tides. And there's flats, and there's different like, things that, that can be hazards for a boat. And often it's like it's sandbars are kind of the big one. Like you got to be careful with the sandbars when the tide's going out because you could be in a, in a certain area and the tide's going is getting shallower and shallower and you're busy doing other things you're fishing or you're doing all this other stuff you're not recognizing what's happening with the water and and before you know it you can get yourself stuck on a sandbar or maybe you're just plowing along and you don't realize how deep it is and normally if it was a certain time you'd be able to go over the sandbar because the water level would be high enough but this time you didn't, you didn't make the calculations quite right, and you just stick yourself on that bar, and you get stuck. And sometimes, oftentimes, unless you want to destroy your, your propeller and your motor, the only way to get unstuck is to wait for the tide to come back and lift you off the sandbar. But before that happens, you go dry. They call it becoming a monument. And everyone drives by in the channel, still afloat, because there's still water there. And they can see you. They can see your whole boat exposed. Your shame is right there for everyone to see. Your boat's all listed over to one side. Most of the time, the crew's like hiding below bunks. Definitely the skipper, the guy, the the captain, he's definitely below bunks because no one wants to get stuck. No one wants to be out in the sandbar for everyone to see. You're supposed to be fishing. You're supposed to be making money. Not sitting in our metal lunk on a, on a sandbar. That's not how this is supposed to go. And, and, and then maybe you're hoping that no one will recognize you, right? Except for that the boat name is written very clearly all over the place for everyone to see. Boats of all shapes and sizes become monuments. The tall ones, the short ones, the wide ones, the thin ones, the ones made from wood, the ones made from fiberglass, the ones made from aluminum. I've even seen the huge tenders become monuments, listing on their side on the ground, waiting for the tide to come in. And the tide does come in. It always comes in. And it has no trouble lifting the boats that have become monuments. The tide doesn't pick and choose. It doesn't play favorites. It doesn't say, yeah, I'm I'm just going to pick up this yacht or or, I'm I'm just going to ignore this rowboat. I mean, that's kind of an ugly boat, so we're just going to let that sucker sink. Like, we're just going to let that be here. The tide doesn't say that. It lifts all of the boats. The rising tide of God's grace works much like the rising tides of Bristol Bay. It lifts all of the boats, no matter the shape or size, no matter how many people gawked at its shame. God's grace lifts all the boats. It lifts all who call him Father. 
We are the boats. We are the boats. And by the grace of God, we are lifted out of the shame and the sin that we are stuck in. So since we are all equal recipients of this grace, no matter how big or small, no matter how we've, you know, no matter if we've been children of faith for a long time or a short time or no matter what our life circumstances are, since we're all in need and we've all been lifted by the amazing grace of God, we, God's people, should feel unified, right? We should feel like, like brothers in arms, United in our need, united in our deliverance, united in our mission. We shouldn't feel divided, right? Do we feel divided? In our text today, the people of God are experiencing division. The people of Judah are are living outside the city while those in the house of David are inside Jerusalem. They have the protection of the city walls and they are nearer to the temple. And yet God acts in the text in such a way that they are both put on a level playing field. He acts so that one, in this case the house of David, will not be put above or surpass the people of Judah. The rising tide of God's grace lifts all of the boats. If we look back in the history books to verify this piece of Israel's history, if, if like, we look back to try to understand why, like, why Judah's on the outside of Jerusalem and, and why David is, is inside, why they're divided, why they were separated, we would be looking for a really, really long time because this doesn't take place in Israel's history. Instead, this is a look forward. The language of the passage, particularly the repetition of the phrase, on that day the Lord will, in verse 8, and and on that day I will, in verse 9, inform us that this this is prophecy. This is something that will be happening in the future of the church. Zechariah is given a vision of the future of God's people, and he sees division. And we do have divisions in our churches, don't we? Growing up in the church and and having had jobs in ministry before, I've I've witnessed divisions in the body of Christ. Like many of us, I've I've witnessed my fair share of people being frustrated with music and and with the songs sung during a Sunday morning service. And and I've seen and and heard church members being divided on, on how to spend the church's funds. I've seen generations struggling to like understand and, and trust each other. I've watched churches fight over if they should have pews or chairs. And there's always the divisive color of the carpet. Now, these are divisions that, that I argue fall under the column of acceptable. Now, I don't mean acceptable in that we want to have them or, or think that they are good. But that when I think of the divisions in the body of Christ, these are the divisions that readily come to mind. They are what my mind immediately views as acceptable or understandable, like I get it. One could argue that I've been programmed this way. In some ways, it's, it's kind of like searching for something on the internet. Do we all understand like, how Google operates its searches? We, as a people, are being targeted through what we view, purchase, and look at online. 
Google will try to tailor its searches for things that are similar to things that we have looked at in the past. And in doing so, they are excluding other things. That we are being, we're putting, we're being put in a box based off of the perception that a computer program has formed of our likes and dislikes. I can't, I can't look at something, I can't look something up on Amazon without having that product and some closely related ad like pop up in the ads on Facebook. And even, even Bible Gateway. I remember one time when Karen had, had bought some items uh, when we were at, I was going to Sam and so we're in Fergus and, and so she purchased some items online at what in my opinion is a women's only site. And, and the next week, Bible Gateway had these like scantily clad women all over my, uh, my computer screen. I'm just like, oh, hey, sorry guys. Yeah, like that's not a thing. I'm, I, it's, it's not me. I'm sorry. My, my bad. The internet like works its way into all of the things. But it's also like curbing us certain directions, kind of hurting us this particular way. These are the, these are the things that you like. I'm not even going to show you this stuff over here. This stuff over here doesn't really matter because based on what you've clicked, the links that you've liked, we're just going to show you this. But it's not just what we shop for, right? It's not just the things that, that, that we're shopping for. It's the things that we look up. It's the things we're looking for information on. Now, they do this for our benefit, they divide these two things for our benefit, but it ends up limiting our online reality. It ends up limiting what we're exposed to. So when I try to gather facts on something, be it political or personal or for school or for whatever, I end up with an intentionally limited pool of results. Similar to like some kind of echo chamber that's just supposed to like speak to me. The divisions that, that I mentioned earlier are my limited pool of results when it comes to divisions in the church. They are the acceptable pool. The pool we get accustomed to, the pool of of divisions that we're allowed to admit to. Right? Like we're allowed to admit to those struggles. It's, It's kind of like sin in that way. Some sin you're allowed to admit to, like like lying. We're allowed to admit to lying because everyone has lied at some point in their life. So it's a sin that Though not truly acceptable, like it's not something we're supposed to do, it's still sin. It's an acceptable type of sin to struggle with. But we all know that there are deeper sins that we aren't allowed to struggle with. We all know that there are sins that we're not allowed to cop to, to admit to, because people will look at us differently, will think about us Differently, we'll whisper behind our backs about us differently. In the same way, arguing about the carpet or the style of music are acceptable conflicts that can lead to division. We're all different people. We all have different thoughts. We get it. There are going to be differences, and these differences are acceptable. What about the divisions that are unacceptable? The ones we don't want to talk about. What about the divisions of race and societal status, economic status, gender? What about the divisions that we know are there but are less eager to address because we don't want to upset the fruit basket? Like, no one wants to rock that boat. 
We can look at our country, our world, and know that our country and culture is rocked by so many unacceptable divisions. Is it so crazy to think that some of those have followed us into our churches? In our text, the people of Israel, the church, they're divided. Some in in the sage confines, within the walls of Jerusalem, protected and safe. And some in the tents outside, exposed. Again, this is a prophecy of the future, a church divided. And I think it's important for us to ask the question, are we contributing to this division? Are we pushing away fellow brothers and sisters because they are different? Because they sound different or or worship different or have an unacceptable past or because they can't tithe like we need them to or aren't as responsible as we think that they should be? Do we keep at arm's length those brothers and sisters who are Christians but don't fit some unspoken yet well-recognized qualification that exists only in the minds of people and not the mind of God? This is a question that we should continually be asking ourselves, not just as Calvary, but as the church, universal. Are we feeding, knowingly or unknowingly, into the division of Christ's body, the church? Any division, whether we classify it as acceptable or unacceptable, is a hindrance to the mission God has called us to. Division is also hard for many reasons, but one that really sticks out to me is that it's often hard to recognize how I may be involved. Most of the divisions that I readily recognize share one thing in common. (laughs) They aren't personal to me. They're all divisions that other people have caused, right? I'm not an active participant in in those divisions. I'm I'm good at seeing the divisions that, that other people are having, the conflicts that other people are having, but I struggle to see the ones that I am involved in. Any of us relate to that? It's simple. It's a simple thing to see the divisions in the church. It's a harder thing to see the divisions that we have caused or participated in ourselves. Sometimes we don't even see that they're there. We are blind to them. But just because we don't see them, just because we don't realize they are happening, does not mean that we are innocent. Ignorance does not beget innocence. Are there divisions that you have participated in? Divisions that you have caused? When I asked myself that question, it was rather humbling. Nothing came to mind at first, you know, and I kind of like straightened my shoulders and I kept my chin up. But the convicting power of the Holy Spirit kept asking me that question and, and kept me asking it. And then some things surfaced. Some memories surfaced of times and I did not work for the unity of the church. I did not work as part of the mission and ministry that Jesus was calling the church to, but instead hampered the church's ministry by feeding division and, and my shoulders sagged and my chin sank. It's not a, a fun realization. It's a very hard one. Now, I don't know where each of you are at, and I don't know your history with church here at Calvary or, or a different church. I'm, I'm pretty new. 
But I would hazard a guess that quite a few of us have on occasion overlooked the ministry of the church and in fact hindered the ministry by putting our thoughts, opinions, desires, and goals ahead of the ministry. And as a result, we have fed division. Now, it's important to recognize that having a differing opinion or a dissenting opinion is not bad. It's not bad. And it's good to have those conversations. It's good to have that discussion. Conflict is not division, right? Those are two very separate things. Conflict and division are not the same thing. Conflict is expected. Conflict should be invited. But after we've moved past the conflict, how are we now dealing with what has happened? How are we now dealing with the decision that has been made? Are we still trying to stand in the way of the conflict or of the, of the decision? This is the kind of division that, that, that we're talking about here. And if this, is, if this is you sitting in the pew wrestling with this realization, man, I've got some great news. The rising tide of God's grace lifts all the boats. It lifts your neighbor's boat. It lifts the boat of that person that totally annoys you. It lifts the boat of the ones you love. It lifts my boat, and it absolutely lifts your boat. It's important for us to recognize our sin. Once we have recognized it, we can repent. We can ask for forgiveness, which God grants us happily, enthusiastically. We can ask God for the strength to change our ways. God doesn't want division in his church. He doesn't want us excluding each other. He doesn't want us fighting amongst ourselves. He doesn't desire that we spend our time and energy bickering about this line item or that process. Obviously, there are things we need to stand firm on. There can be no budging when it comes to the authority of Scripture, no adjustment when it comes to Jesus, His life, death, and resurrection. The fundamental truths of Scripture are true and firm and cannot be messed with. But when it comes to our preferences, when it comes to our traditions, these cannot be allowed to divide us, to divide the church. God's desire is that we unite. God's desire is that we partner with him in his mission to spread the gospel to the far ends of the earth. His desire is that we partner with him in his mission to bring his kingdom to earth. He doesn't desire for us to be divided. And so he has had mercy on us. He poured out his grace on us. The rising tide of God's grace lifts all the boats. In his grace, we are unified. Galatians chapter 3, 26 and 28, as Dolores read earlier. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of as you, sorry, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And in his grace we are protected. Verses 8 to 9 of our text this morning, we read, On that day the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem. 
So the feeblest among them on that day will be like David, and the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. And on that day I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. God protects those that are his. He may not protect us from earthly harm. Our bodies will still decay. Evil words will still hurt our hearts. Our bones will still break if we fall hard enough. God does not promise to shield us from pain. But he will not abandon us. He will never leave us. He is always with us. And for all the pain that we take, all the pain that we feel, remember that he feels it with us. He felt it on the cross. He protects us from the eternal punishment that our sin demanded. Our God protects us. His protection was most clearly manifest in Jesus Christ, the one that was pierced, as our text today refers to him. He was pierced for all of us. His spirit of grace and supplication was poured out on all people. It was poured out on you. It was poured out on me. And how grateful I am that his grace poured out on me is not dependent on my works. The divisions that work against the unity of the body of Christ do not keep us from his grace. Of course, this does not mean we should ignore them. For do we go on sinning that grace may increase? Of course not. But it is a solace for us broken sinners that God's grace is given to us, that his protection is promised to us, as it is in our text today, that despite the division, despite the sin that lives in our lives, God has made a way. That he has had mercy on us. The rising tide of God's grace lifts all the boats. Let us bask in his grace as he uses us in his mission to bring about his kingdom.